My name is Stacy Sargent Lawton, and I'm a hospital chaplain. Each week on this podcast, a few fellow chaplains will join me to discuss an episode or two of the great TV hospital drama, ER, from our unique perspectives as spiritual caregivers. This is ER Chaplains Watching ER. Father, please protect my soul. Hi, and welcome to another great episode of ER Chaplains Watching ER. I'm your host, Stacey Sargent Lawton, and with me tonight, I have the entire team. We have Deborah Gaddis-Reeves. Hi. Sarah J. Moran. Salutations. Janie Toy Powell. Hi. And Carrie Walker-Nittles. Hi. So glad to have everybody here with us um, just to discuss two more episodes of ER. Tonight we're going to be looking at episodes four and five of season one of ER. And to recap episode four, titled Hit and Run, we have Janie to do a one-minute-ish recap. Take it, Janie. Okay, so the episode opens. Dr. Benton wakes Carter up in the sleep room. Uh, which I think is how all the episodes have opened up to this point. Dr. Green tells, um, and then outside, Dr. Green tells Dr. Ross about Jen's job interview in Detroit. Dr. Lewis first greets a patient who is still attempting to do some work while being treated in the ER. I think he sells office equipment, but he can't stay off of his phone. He can't seem to make time to answer Dr. Lewis's questions about his health and his potentially serious um, situation. Um, in the next scene, a mom brings her son for treatment for hearing problems um, and is seen by Dr. Ross and Nurse Hathaway. Uh, we soon learn that the mother has symptoms of schizophrenia. The patient, about six years old, I'd guess, asks Dr. Ross if he can stay with his mom, and Dr. Ross says, you bet you can. And then we see mom yelling in the next room, presumably to the voices in her head. Dr. Benton and Carter assess the surgical needs of a lady with possible blood clots. Carter um, mentions Verkow's triad, I think that's what it was called. And um, no way was Dr. Benton admitting that he didn't know what that was. But in a later scene, he asked Dr. Roth, um, and it was funny. Dr. Green sees an emergent patient with heart, sim- cardiac symptoms and um, takes her history Dr. Benton and Dr. Langworthy, his competition for a fellowship, treat and fail to save a teenage hit-and-run victim. Carter has a hard time with this one. Back to the mom and the son. Um, The mom has evidently learned she's about to be admitted and is defiant and combative. Both Dr. Ross and the little boy, his name is Ozzy, witnessed the whole thing. Um, The psychiatrist, I need you guys to remind me of his name later. Um, He gets hurt by the patient and displays his unempathetic attitude toward his patients when he's talking to Dr. Lewis, who he's also dating. Uh, The workaholic salesman's phone keeps interrupting um, and eventually interferes with another patient's cardiac defibrillator, makes it keep going off, so Dr. Green yells at him to turn it off. Dr. Carter IDs the teenage patient and calls the family. Dr. Ross tries to convince Dr. Green that he may cheat on his wife under certain circumstances. A new patient comes in for a possible MI. His name is Neil Shearer. They say that a bunch of times. He's handcuffed to his mistress in a compromising position. Jerry's charged with watching Ozzy. 
Niels Shearer's wife comes in to be with him and has no idea that he'd been in an intimate situation with Priscilla, her secretary. Dr. Carter calls the teenager's family and they come in. Dr. Lewis consults Dr. Benton on a surgery and he is ugly to her about how that patient does the surgery. Dr. Hathaway confronts Dr. Ross about lying to Ozzy and accuses him of being unable to handle a big emotional scene. Dr. Lewis was right that her patient needed surgery. Dr. Morgenstern yells at her, but Dr. Benton admits his fault. Mrs. Shear finds her husband's room and learns the truth about his relationship with Priscilla. Uh, Carter called the wrong family. Um, they come in to, to see um, the patient, and they say, that's not our son. Eventually, he finds the right one, and they come in, and he tells them the bad news. Um, there's a scene with gallows humor that's pretty funny and, and maybe also insensitive with um, the patient who's detoxing from drugs, and he sounds like a car alarm, and they, Lewis and Green kind of start making the sound, too, like in harmony. And I just thought, that's a good example of gallows humor. We need to point that out. Um, Morgan Stern criticizes Benton for not listening to that patient that needed surgery, but then he invites him to assist in a whipple. And um, so, and he actually got to do the procedure. So sounds like a reward to me. Carter and Jerry, uh, Carter's had a bad day. and He's lamenting to Jerry. And then this car speeds up. It's very exciting. And a lady has a baby right there in the car. And Carter delivers the baby and it's sort of redemptive and wonderful. Um, and then Ross goes to Carol's apartment and makes a fool out of himself in front of the orthopedic Dr. Taglieri with whom Carol is in a serious relationship. The end. Thank you, Janie. Nicely done. So where do we want to start, y'all? Huh. Well, my first thing was obviously never make promises uh, because there's so much outside of your control, um, and particularly to kids. I, I just kind of, it's a thorn in my side when I see people making promises to children. Yeah, I really cringed when Doug did that too, when he told the little boy, Ozzy, that, you know, of course you'll be able to stay with your mother, and Carol knew immediately that he had screwed up that you know you said the wrong thing because that is not what's going to happen um but she's right he was just trying to keep the child happy in the moment and not you know not let him get upset right then and just wait until later when the bad news hits and everything falls apart i also thought that in the part with uh ozzy when they're in the hall and the mother is being combative as janie says but there is no way that that many nurses and staff would just be standing there watching the child witness what's going on. It makes right. for good TV, but nurses especially, they are people of action. Mm -hmm. They would have scooped <laughs> that kid up and carried him away That's and distracted him without, you know, trying to downplay what's going on. Later mm -hmm. on, the nurses do get down on his level and uh, Nurse Hathaway deals with him in a very kind way. But in that particular scene, she's just standing in the hall staring at him as it's all going on. That would not happen in real life. No, definitely not. Well, I, and Ozzy not only witnessed his mother in a break and, and combative with so many people and then actually bite um, the, the psychiatrist, he also later overheard the same psychiatrist who's apparently maybe burning 
out mm-hmm. um, because he's talking about in 15 years, not one day has gone by when I haven't been peed or pooped on or bitten or vomited on. Um, and so he's really, he's venting it all out. And, you know, rightfully so, he, he's full of emotion because he's just been bitten. Um, however, he makes the statement that uh, Ozzy's mom should have a lobotomy uh, uh, hammer straight to the head. Um, and this is something unbeknownst to him or Lewis that uh, Ozzy is overhearing about his mom. Yeah, which is what a traumatic day for that kid. Ugh. And it, it should be said that if a child goes missing in the ER, then we sort of lock it down until staff <laughs> finds that child. I mean, it's very dangerous for a child to be missing in any situation, but especially in the emergency department. So it, it would have been a lockdown, and Code staff P. would have found that child. Code yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. They're not just going to keep going about their business and, well, hope that kid turns up. You know? <laughs> it, it was does, 1994. It does, some, mm-hmm. <laughs> it does bring up some other issues about um, where it's easy to find sympathy for Ozzy. But I'd like us to stop for a minute and think about, and I think that the the psychiatrist and the the insensitive things he was saying were meant to cause us to think about whether we have any sympathy or empathy for her. Mm -hmm. But having spent, you know, in my psychiatric rotation, a lot of time with patients like that, specifically schizophrenic patients, um, we need to realize that, and Dr. Ross does say later, it's not her fault, you know, she didn't asked to be this way. But we need to realize that, you know, inside of her head is a terrifying place mm-hmm. when she has this break. She feels very threatened. She's worried about her kid. She is doing what any mother who feels threatened would do. And the voices that she hears inside her head are very scary. And she doesn't, she doesn't know how to process everything that's going on. So it's easy for us to just dismiss all of those psychiatric you know, issues, but, but if we stop and sit with those people for a minute, we would realize that that is a very scary place to be. I can remember my predecessor, um, Sally, who, who did the psychiatric rotation before me, introduced me to a quote um, to whom I can't remember to contribute it to, but it, it was something like, the mentally ill are just like us, only more so. Mm-hmm. Mm. We are all one step away from where they are. Sometimes ten steps. And she shows potential for being a good mom. She wasn't there because of her own issues. She had come to the ER out of concern for her son because he couldn't hear, you know, but clearly he could hear fine. He just wasn't hearing the voices that she was hearing. But she was there because she was concerned about his health and well-being. So she shows potential there. Yeah, and I think Doug, to his credit, when he does realize that he has handled this wrong and they they find the kid, well, actually, Carol's boyfriend, Taglieri, finds the kid, and Doug hates that, I'm sure, but um, Doug does get down on Ozzy's level and says to him, you know, your mom is very sick and she's going to have to go away for a while. Um, You're going to a children's home, but your mom loves you very much. And then the child starts crying and says, then why is this happening and again, I was really proud of Doug that he doesn't try to give an answer. He just hugs the kid and says, I wish I knew, which is sometimes mm-hmm. the best answer that we can give. And he just, you know, sits with the kid in that 
the the confusion and the sadness at the unfairness of this whole situation, which was very pastoral of him. Yeah. Which is interesting because he can be so pastoral and so empathetic at the hospital, and yet in his personal life, he is a complete emotional disaster. Yes. <laughs> My patience with him goes downhill so fast. Yeah, he has this wonderful moment with this pediatric patient, and then later on he shows up drunk at Carol's doorstep, you know, with flowers for her, knowing that her boyfriend is there with her and who answers the door, like, naked. Um, and Doug just tries to insert himself into that whole situation when he's the one who dumped her, apparently, after two years of them going out. Mm. Well, since you said the word naked, I think this segues to the the situation where you had um, this man come in with a likely heart attack during uh, sexual intercourse with, you know, this much younger woman, but it turns out not to be his wife, and they're handcuffed, and she's wearing a bed sheet, and uh, I don't even know what he was wearing, some kind of chaps, and so um, sets the scene, you know, and then here comes the wife. Um, those kind of things really happen. And it's not just Hollywood that's making that up. And I, you know, I had, I, I, it took me back to a couple of experiences that I've had in the emergency department where it was like going between, you know, two different stories and not really sure your role in that other than just trying to provide a peaceful presence to the people that were anxious. But there was clearly uh, adultery going on that, and they were just, sort of finding it out, you know, because mm -hmm. of a car accident where you had two involved and then the wife showed up and she was starting to put two and two together. And that is a very uncomfortable situation for all of the staff. Mm -hmm. I really liked when they showed Malik um, hiding the bolt cutters behind his back. <laughs> that provided a lot of levity for the situation. But I, I agree, Deborah. There were times when I really kind of had to pep talk myself in the hallway of like, this is this situation is not mine. I don't need to absorb the anxiety that's going on here. These are the these other people's choices, and I can be pastoral to everybody. <laughs> yes, so, and yeah. try, try not to have judgment, and certainly try not to laugh. Because yeah, I, well, she they, says you know the, the, the wife says you know you all must think this is very funny. I don't think anybody at that moment really finds it funny. It's the sort of thing no, you might laugh about much later, but everybody in that moment is horrified. Horrified. Totally, totally awkward for everyone. <laughs> but these are real life moments in the ER. But you know, a contrast to that, I, there were times when I would see quite the opposite and I was floored by that too. When I would see you know, first wife and second wife or wife and girlfriend or whatnot, like whatever scenario, coming together and working together really well as a larger family unit. And I kind of stood back like, well, I'll be damned. Mm -hmm. Excellent point, Carrie. Excellent. That is so true, too. Yeah, we see every imaginable kind of family in the <laughs> ER. <laughs> all along the whole spectrum of functionality. Oh, yeah. Jane? Um, yeah, I just, I, that makes, <laughs> that conversation makes me think of a couple of times when I remember specifically an ex-spouse coming out of the woodwork to care for this, you yeah. know, an alienated 
dying person. And like, and, and, and I don't even think it was that they had this great relationship after their breakup. I think it was just one person recognizing this person's alone and has burned all their bridges. Um, and that touched my heart. Like what, um, I mean, what a, that's a beautiful picture of love that like, you know, they loved this person at one time and they're going to dig deep and find this, this strength to care for them um, as Mm. they're very sick. And I've always found that really special and inspiring. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, I think that is really beautiful when we get to see that. Um, Speaking of beautiful and inspiring, I was really moved by the way Carter um, tried to handle the situation with the hit and run, um, the teenager who was killed, um, and they were didn't know who this kid was. All they had to go on was his, I think it was his shorts, had the name of his high school on them. Um, so Carter was assigned to try to identify this kid who's died and find the family. And so he calls the school and there's nobody there, but the janitor, the janitor offers to bring by the yearbook. And, um, and then Carter looks through the yearbook to try to find a picture that looks like this kid. And the the first time I saw this, I was like, this is a bad idea. This kid, you know, he's been hit by a car. His face is all messed up. He's been dead for a while. He's not going to look like his yearbook picture. Um, but Carter finds the kid that he thinks is, is the one dead on the table and, and tells Benton all his activities. Like he's looked through, the, through this whole yearbook and kind of got to know this kid and says, he's kind of a nerd. He's kind of like me. And I was just like, Oh, Carter. <laughs> like that's one of the things that as chaplains, we learn in CPE just to recognize those patients that push our buttons and the ones that we see ourselves in are some of the ones mm-hmm. that can push them the hardest. Um, and, and Carter definitely fell into that and got really wrapped up in this situation and then ends up calling the wrong parents to bring them in and show them this dead kid who ends up not being their kid. Um, but he really, he really did care. Like he really was trying to do the compassionate thing and, and do right by this family. Um, and I just cannot imagine what those parents must have felt, you know, to have absolute worst news that you can get and then go in and realize this is not your kid. Your kid is fine. <laughs> um, just the emotional roller coaster that they were on. Um, but Carter watches Benton make the death notification to these parents that turn out to be the wrong ones. So then when they do finally track down the right parents, Carter does it himself and and does it really well for his first time. Um, you know, very compassionately and very factually not using too much medical jargon just tells them what happened you know your son was in a car accident tells them the medical interventions that were tried and for how long they tried to revive him and then says but despite our best efforts he died um which again is so important to just state the facts and not use euphemisms when there's death involved one of the things that that these scenes um does bring up for me is um, when you have someone who dies, how do you handle the body and where does it go? In this particular um, hospital, they always seem completely pressed for space. And I'm not really sure what this common area that they have the body in there with a sheet over it is. It looks like the place they read x-rays and where they keep spare equipment. Else, But um, that's not the way that it would work in either of the hospitals that I worked at. Uh, bodies are are treated 
with much more dignity than that and always have their own space for the family to be able to visit. Um, and I've often had, had families request that I stay with a body, you know, for so long or I do certain mm -hmm. things and mm -hmm. I can usually, you know, fulfill those wishes to um, comfort them in that time. So I thought it was a little jarring to just have this, again, it might be because it's such a big city hospital, but perhaps it's also just television, I'm not sure. Well, they needed also to prep the parents, even though the parents said, can we see him? Well, turns out it wasn't the parents, but when they still thought it was their child and they asked to see him, um, I always tried to hasten that process for loved ones who wanted um, to see the, the deceased. However, I think it's best practice to prepare them just a little bit um, for, for the fact that they're going to be seeing some trauma to the face or whatever. Yeah, I would always tell the families as specifically as I could, you know, he's got a lot of cuts to his face. If he's intubated, I would make sure to tell them, you know, he's got a tube in and that cannot be removed in the case where an autopsy has to be done, which is often the case with traumatic deaths like we see in the ER. So that, that tube is still going to be in their mouth when the family members see them. So always to make sure to let the family members know exactly what they're walking into as much as you can be prepared for something like that. Um, and it's still going to be a shock, but just to let them know as much as possible what the, their loved one is going to look like. Sometimes um, staff will seems to want to discourage families from seeing victims, especially when they feel that they look messed up. Mm -hmm. um, but as the chaplain, there have been very, very few times when I have not recommended that the family, if they felt strongly about it, to see their, their loved one's body. I think that that's a really, really important form of closure um, in that part of the grieving process. And right. so there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, it's a very, very healthy part of it. Yeah. I want to circle back around to, to Carter bumping up against his own existential limits and um, kind of thinking about his own mortality. Um, it appeared, I don't know, it appeared as though this was maybe Carter's first death in the trauma bay, or um, he really took it hard initially, even before he found out that he had a lot in common with this, um, with this kid. And then as he proceeded to learn more about him and his story unfolded, um, he really was identifying. And, and you're right, Stacey, that, you know, we're taught about recognizing that and being able to um, guard against over-identifying or, or whatnot in our CPE. I kind of wonder about the training that other staff have um, around that because we all experience the cases where, um, and we see it again in the next episode, Green has a similar experience with a wife and a daughter in a case that comes in and it reminds him of himself and his one daughter and wife. And um, I think all of us who have worked in, in the ER, chaplain or not, have these experiences where um, a case reminds us of ourselves or our loved ones or um, our stories seemed parallel um, and they really get us deep. And, um, and we have to find a way to treat them and kind of not feel 
at the moment um, and then find a place or a time later to feel uh, or if, if you keep stuffing all of those feelings and it'll just come out sideways eventually. Um, the only the only thing that that they say to Carter is somebody in the ER uh, after they call the death says, we lose them all the time. Not yeah. helpful. Yeah. And here he is <laughs> right. leaning up against the IV pole with his head on the blood bag. And yeah. he's, you know, he's dying inside too. And that's the best they can do. That's their way of coping. But yes, mm-hmm. I, I definitely think that in that case, a chaplain would be a wonderful person to step in and realize what is going on in his head and in his heart and in his soul. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, talk to all of our new grads that come in to work in our hospital and um, new grad nurses. And then when we get nurses who are new to our setting from adult care, um, I, I spend a little bit of time with them too. And then um, I'm starting to branch out and talk to other staff positions, not just nurses. So um, that, and, and it's like, um, that's definitely something that we talk about, the um, seeing yourself, um, identify, over-identifying with patients, seeing your grandma or seeing your um, somebody that reminds you of your own life or your own self. Um, and so, so I, one of you had mentioned, I don't know if anybody else talks about it. Well, they do at my hospital because I talk Yay. about it with them. So um, <laughs> I love that work I lo- that I do. That's really um really good and fun for me. But yeah, I think that um, there's definitely that misconception that we, if you see it a lot, that it should be easy or that like, I don't know. I, I thought about when I, I think it was, it was one of the nurses who said that. I don't even know that I caught it in the scene, but I just, I wondered when I heard it the first time, like what, what's that about? Is she trying to pass off some of her own callousness or, you know, mm. is she reacting to, to his his intense emotions, like, I don't know, what was that about? That was interesting to me, so. Yeah, you can definitely mm-hmm. see sometimes where uh, staff in the ER, particularly, it seems like there's a whole separate culture in the ER, um, and there's a real aversity to, um, or aversion, I mean, to feeling. Mm-hmm. We don't want to feel. I... I don't know if it's just because of my the, the hospital I work in, but I, my ER has been super open and receptive. They're the some of the first ones to try new stuff. Um, our manager had this great idea to take um, a minute, like a moment of silence after something difficult. And um, I mean, that wasn't even that wasn't even my idea. Like I thought, and that was great. And like, they do that now and um, they take care of themselves. And I don't, you know, I don't know if it's because we work with kiddos or what, but I mean, I've, I've, my experience has really been that they've been super open to that. And they're still like, it's like they're super busy and they, they like to stay busy. And I, I, I'm mm-hmm. picking up on that, but I do feel like they're, yeah, there's a, a different kind of openness about this ER. I love that. Yeah. And, of course, that started from the top down. You know, I think yeah. what you both said makes a lot of sense. Terry's right in that if that space is not provided to them by the manager, like in your case, Janie, then mm-hmm. there isn't time for that. And when you see somebody that you work with start to feel deeply and express that through emotion, 
then it's hard not to feel that yourself or to feel for that, even that person, you know? And so it can be, it can be like, oh gosh, we can't, we can't go there, you know, and you kind of have to move on and maybe just, um, you know, and, but I wanted to add that he does take that opportunity later to just sit outside after his shift is over and he found somebody who kind of gets it, you know, a, a clerk there in the ER. What is his job in the, anyway, ladies, you know, I'm just kind of new to the show. You know, unit secretary? About, yeah. 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 Jerry. Jerry. Okay. Jerry. So, Jerry's you know, Jerry, yeah. And Jerry knows all that. He's not providing the direct um, patient care, but he's seeing everything and he's being amazing. But he's sitting, they're sitting together in kind of that, that common space outside. And um, what I loved about that scene was not only that they had a chance to kind of talk about the reality of the day and maybe not coming back because of, you know, such a hard day and seeing yourself right there in, in the death of another. But in that moment, here comes a speeding car and um, it's a, a man bringing his wife who is full on labor and delivering her baby in the back seat and it's Carter whose hands receive that new life and it changes things for him it's such a balance that I think we all work with so even in those moments when you know we take even a second to grieve and and we're just or to accept that reality of death and then there's also going to be a high you know that kind of helps balance balance it out and and reminds us, you know, of the cycle of life and the restoration and resurrection and, you know, all of those things that we chaplains love to see in the new life imagery. So it's powerful. It's a great scene. Yay, Hollywood. Yeah. And that goes back to being um, instruments. And I think that that's what Carter can see himself as. He's feeling so down because he feels useless. He feels like he hasn't been a good instrument. He He's been described as adequate by his superiors, which really bugs him. And here he is having delivered life with, with uh, you know, this, this blood of the newborn on his hands. And in that moment, he, he is the hands and feet of God, and he recognizes it. And that, that's a beautiful scene. Mm. I thought that that scene to me looked a lot like a prayer, like, like he was telling, you know, I use the word lament in my summary yes. because it was like a prayer of, of lament that he was telling Jerry. And then, and then here comes this car and it's like, God just showed up and he was like, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some redemption and some hope in all of this. And I just, <laughs> it just looked, so, it was like, wow, a prayer and an answered prayer right there. So. And I love the station wagon. I had that station wagon in my family when I was a little girl, and I loved that station wagon. If I had a nickel for every time I said some version of Carter's words, if I come back, I have I have quit so many times. I can't in your count it. in your head. Oh, I told yeah. I would tell my colleagues all the time, "This is it. I'm done. I quit." And those were limits. They were limits because, um, because sometimes, you know, it's when it builds up, it's hard to bear witness to uh, tragedy after tragedy, especially when um, when your meaning making framework gets monkeyed with. 
Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hi. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm laughing, but I just relate so much. <laughs> I think it's just, it's funny because I'm like, yeah, that exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I wanted to add this, too, while we're talking about relating to the patients that we encounter or experience, you know, seeing our grandmother in a patient or experiencing something personally, um, I find it, too, that sometimes we are kind of running from that, too. Like, if a patient reminds us of something, we might avoid it, too, you know, kind of get um, and so that's another piece of wellness is acknowledging that something in this relationship, um, or I'm sorry, something in this patient is reminding me of something that's unfinished in another relationship and things. So, you know, there's just room for, for all of the heartstrings being tugged, but also all of that, you know, rough stuff that we deal mm-hmm. with too in our families that are unresolved for us as well. Um, and I think in terms of Benton, you know, I'm not sure that that this came into the summary. Maybe it did, but um, he is so busy taking care of others and saving people's lives that he forgets that he is supposed to be sitting with his own mother who has some form of dementia, we learn. And um, his sister is primary caregiver and it's her 10th wedding anniversary, and she just kind of wanted one night off, and that was all he was supposed to do is just go leave it and be there at 8.30 in the evening. It wasn't even like he was having to leave a shift, and he forgot because he was so focused on others. And I think in some ways, um, you know, it's true for a lot of us that when you have a lot of pain in your personal life or, um, you know, that, that can be an escape in a way. Mm-hmm. Let me focus on something I can actually fix. Let me work on something like this. It was, and forgetting or sometimes ignoring the things that are at home. And that's true, you know, for chaplains as well as any clinician in the ED. In that case, though, with Benton, it was also his pride because the reason yeah. that he didn't go, get off the time he was supposed to was because uh, Morgan Stern offered him this opportunity to do the Whipple surgery, which apparently is a big deal. I, I'm not sure I understand completely uh, not being a surgeon, but um, <laughs> he considers this to be a great honor, especially in light of the competition that he's been facing and him wanting to prove himself so much. And that's why when he goes out in the waiting room and his brother-in-law is there and starts talking to him about, you know, you you want to prove yourself to everyone, but you can't even fulfill these basic family responsibilities. So yes, that is definitely brought to light. And I feel like perhaps we'll come back to that for maybe, maybe there's some foreshadowing that it's something that's going to have to be dealt with. Mm. Yeah. Um, So we are coming to the time we need to wrap up talking about this episode. Does anybody have any other last thoughts on this episode? Uh, I, Sarah Jane. Sorry, Sarah Jane. <laughs> uh, Dr. Lewis dealing with the stressed out copier uh, technology guy who can't stop long enough to uh, hear his own diagnosis but has this gigantic 1994 cell phone that he continues <laughs> to do business with uh, from his hospital bed. And when she questions his, uh, his type of lifestyle, he is telling her about how he's 
you know, always got to be the one that makes the most sales. He has to be the one to get all the rewards and take all the, the trips that you get from those rewards. And yet he doesn't see the irony at all. Mm -hmm. And by the way, are cell phones really that powerful that they can affect defibrillators and um, the wheelchair that was, I figured it was <laughs> going to be like a ghost of the hospital, but it's just a wheelchair <laughs> going round and round supposedly because this old fashioned cell phone has such a strong signal. I think that was just, you know, humor for the episode to keep us kind of smiling in between all of the other things. But yeah, I thought that was such a 1994 storyline that cell phones were still so new that they <laughs> seemed magical that anything could happen with them. You know, maybe they could do all these weird things. <laughs> The the workaholic actually said to, to Susan Lewis when she was making suggestions on, on lifestyle changes to help him with um, what she thought was an ulcer, or no, uh, IBS bowel. Could, could become an ulcer. He said something about decreasing or managing your stress better. And his response to her was, I have no control over the stress in my life. And, you know, my spiritual screening ears went what yeah wow that seems like a pretty terrible place to be if I feel that trapped that I can't manage the yeah. stress of my life I have no control over the amount of stress that I have in my life well he obviously feels that being a good salesman is being accessible 24 7 to anyone mm -hmm. else and yet he's not accessible to himself and that includes his own well-being in all presumably his family yeah mm -hmm. but he wouldn't have had time to sit with the chaplain anyway so we wouldn't have gotten <laughs> an opportunity to help him no. <laughs> too busy yeah um so i just had one other thing that i wanted to bring up when about the hit and run victim and carter's deal with him so we at least in my hospital the chaplains sometimes do get called in to help with identifying patients when we don't know who they are. Um, and a lot of times family or friends or somebody will end up calling the hospital and asking if this person is there, but we still don't know if that is this person. So one of the things that we have to ask about is, um, do they have any like identifying scars, moles, tattoos, where those things are? And a lot of times, you know, the other staff are so busy and do kind of depend on the chaplains to do that, that that I've, you know, many times had to sort of inspect dead or really, really seriously injured bodies for these marks so, so I can find out for these family members if this is the person that they're looking for. Um, and in the beginning, honestly, it kind of weirded me out. But I got to the point where I really, it was, it became about incarnation for me. Um, you yes. know, as that's mm. such a big part of the Jesus story, the part of the reason that I'm a Christian is because God took on flesh, and because of that, bodies are holy. You know, I think that that was God's way of of saying that our bodies matter to God and are holy. And so, just just looking so closely at these people's bodies um, became sort of a way of of recognizing them and relating to them. And you know that this is the body that. I love the verse in Psalms that says God knits us together in our mother's womb. And so just, you know, taking a moment to appreciate the, the story of this life that was lived in this body um, 
that became a, a part, a big part of chaplaincy for me too, even in those, those weird situations where I have to look for people's scars and tattoos. Um, so I just thought about mm-hmm. that with Carter's situation. Yeah. Um, anyone have a favorite moment that they want to share from the episode? I'll say just... Oh. The lady who who was having such bad chest pain that they were going to have to give her morphine and maybe rush her to surgery. But, you know, it was just gas. <laughs> yeah, that one horrible big belch, and she was fine. Gosh. So many smells. So many smells. And, and if you have a sensitive nose, it's really, the ER can be a really difficult place to be sometimes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, try doing it pregnant. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really loved the the man who comes in, and this was just sort of a little throwaway moment, but this man comes in who says to Dr. Green that, you know, you saved my life a year ago today. This is Dr. Green yeah. Day. So he brings him a dozen frozen T-bone steaks as a thank you and says, Every day, every year this day is going to be Dr. Green Day, and he's going to come back and do this for him every year. And then he gives him this giant bear hug and just picks him up off the floor. <laughs> and Dr. Green, you know, barely, if at all, remembers this guy. But, but for that man, the day he met Dr. Green was, was one of the biggest days of his life, you know? And, um, and that's something that I have to keep in mind. A lot of times, like, I see so many patients, and doctors and nurses certainly do, that there's no way we can possibly remember all of them, but for most of them, the day they meet us is a huge day in their life for a lot of times for one of the worst days of their life, but, um, right. but they remember it differently than we do. And so just that change of perspective, um, that was really good. And we've had patients in our ER that, that do that, that will send pizza to the whole ER staff on the day that, you know, their loved one was saved there, or there's another family that I think their loved one ended up dying, but, they still every year on Thanksgiving and Christmas send like catered meals to the ER staff because mm-hmm. they so appreciated the wow. way that their yeah. family member was cared for there. Wow. I also wow. love that Dr. Green said, said to us, Susan Lewis, I've been embraced two times today. I find that highly unusual. <laughs> I think you deserve to be embraced, Dr. Green. <laughs> Hugs are good for everyone. Yes, most definitely. Okay, so um, we will take a short break and we'll be back to talk about episode five. And we're back to discuss episode five of season one of ER, which is titled Into That Good Night. And not exactly prepared y'all, but I'm going to do my best to recap this puppy. So, um, we see, yeah, here's the bullet (laughs) for, um, episode five. So Doug is the one sleeping, um, in the opening of this episode, all five of the first five episodes have all opened with somebody being woken up. Um, Doug's on an extra long shift so that he could earn a weekend off. And he jokes that he's too old for this. Other people make jokes about his age, which is hilarious because he's like in his early thirties. But anyway, Mark is on the phone with his wife, Jennifer, who has a job opportunity in Milwaukee in federal court. 
and they really need to talk about it in person. So Doug tells Mark that he can handle the ER for a while so Mark can go talk to his wife and work on his marriage. Um, the two-car crash brings in two victims, a seven-month pregnant woman going into early labor, and the driver who hit her, um, whom the police identify as a gangbanger who stole the car. Doug is frantically trying to stop this woman's labor, worries about the baby's lungs at only 28 weeks, but it looks like that she's going to go ahead and have the baby. Mark really doesn't want to move to Milwaukee, but Jennifer tells him she's made a lot of compromises for his career and implies that now it's his turn. Carol says something about it maybe being a quiet night, and Jerry says not to use the keyword, which I love because that's very true to life. Um, Carter is thinking he may have an STD from the hypersexual patient he slept with in the last episode or a couple episodes ago, but he's trying to keep it quiet. That does not work out so well. <laughs> Our main patient of the episode comes in, Mr. Gasner, Samuel Gasner, who has a history of cardiomyopathy, heart problems. He's in town for a builder's convention, lives in Cleveland, he's away from his family. He can be talking to you one minute, then his heart will stop, and then he regains consciousness quickly, but his heart is quickly giving out. He's hoping for a heart transplant, but the staff quickly realizes that unless he gets one tonight, it's not going to help. Doug has a patient, a little girl named Sandy, with asthma. The mother um, worries about afford, being able to afford the medication, which Doug doesn't realize until later. He gives her a prescription. She doesn't have the $30 to fill it, and he ends up helping her out um, by paying for it himself. The staff tries to reach Mr. Gasner's family and has a hard time doing that, but eventually are able to get his wife and daughter there um, to have a little time with him before his heart does give out. Also, um, Ivan, the owner of a liquor store that we met in an earlier episode, comes back. He has shot himself in the foot with a gun he bought to protect his store after he was shot by a robber on a previous episode. He um, asks for Dr. Benton by name because he gave him such good care previously. Um, Mark was supposed to be off at midnight, but he sticks around for Dr. for Mr. Gasner, and um, he and Doug have a conversation about family stuff that is brought up by Mr. Gasner's situation. Um, Doug's very sweet with a really elderly woman who fell, and she insists that she can't have an x-ray because she's six months pregnant, and he just tells her not to worry that they will shield the baby with lead. He's very sweet with her. <laughs> um, Mr. Gasner and Dr. Green have a lot of conversations about family, life and death stuff that I'm sure we will get into in a minute. The gangbanger from the car crash dies in the OR, and the cop and Dr. Benton are not too concerned about it, <laughs> not real compassionate about it at all. Um, Carter has to be back at work in five hours, but an alcohol poisoning case comes in, and he jumps at the chance to watch Dr. Lewis do an intubation and learn from that. Um, some of the guy's friends come in and explain that he was take, doing, they were playing a drinking game, and he had like 20 shots of tequila, and is lucky to be alive. Um, I think that covers all the high points. There's a lot of stuff going on with Mr. Gasner. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, so at the end, when after Mr. Gasner dies, Mark goes home and sees his wife and daughter and tearfully hugs them because it put you know family stuff in perspective for him. So I'll stop there. Anybody have initial thoughts on this episode? We see Doug and uh, Carol walking through the hall after the um, the emergency car crash folks come in, and and the pregnant mom is having the baby despite their their attempts to stop it. 
Um, and so they rush her up to OB and they get NICU on the line and, and ready. And after that is resolved and, and the baby is, is in the NICU, they're talking about this situation. And Zach says something to the effect of God smiled on that situation. Um, so it's one of the few times so far we've heard them kind of overtly, explicitly mention um, God or any kind of reference to a meaning-making belief system. Um, and she says, since when do you believe in God? Um, and he says, you know, well, I've been contemplating my existence and insignificance of the universe, which, which again, you know, this place that we're, that we're working in is constantly forcing us for better or for worse, to bump up against these existential limits. Well, and then Mr. Gasner also talks about God several times. He, he has his near-death awareness comes into play over the course of the episode. He has his instincts, but he wants Dr. Green to say it out loud. He needs mm -hmm. to hear that. And he, and he says, this is no time to be formal, and this is you versus God, and you know who wins. Um, but Green says, I prefer not to think about it that way. So I thought that that was a pretty good answer, you know. At, but Dr. Green's feelings about, about this whole case are so complicated, I'm not really yeah. sure what he meant. I think that he had some sort of instinct that, uh, that Sam Gasner had, had things to teach him, that he was mm -hmm. going to stay and see this through because he kept hearing mm -hmm. things that he needed to hear that he not only saw himself in this situation, but also it's like every time that Sam opens his mouth, he's, he's prophetic while still being believable as someone who's dying. Yes, and that particular theology that comes out of his mouth, uh, it's you versus God and, and we know who wins, um, is so curious, you know, I don't know what I would say if I was the, the resident standing there, but it was the chaplain. I really want to know more about that um, because my curiosity is, you know, what does that mean to you, God, when um, versus a, a doctor who's trying to save your life? Because for me, um, that's not God winning. Um, God's winning is life. Um, so, it took me back to multiple times when I've been working in the in the hospital setting and I hear um, curious theology or what I am hearing is potentially problematic theology. So um, what does that mean for someone who is nearing death who views implicitly at least that nearing death means God is winning? What kind of God is that? I think it's more about the inevitability of death, which we have discussed in one of our prior episodes, that, um, that that's not something that, you know, is uh, that we're, we're going to all come up against it. Um, right. And I think that that is more of what he was saying. But yes, certainly I do think that, you know, talking and trying to understand a person's theology um, can be helpful. In this particular time I'm not sure that it would have been appropriate to ask Sam well let's talk about that maybe <laughs> but I kept thinking can we get the family in there come on come on right what's all this you know uh, there was there was too much waiting and not enough as soon as the family got there bring them in come on yes. yeah I thought that 
too. He was like, he's sleeping. Uh, so what? He only has like a few hours, if that. Like, that was crazy. And we would have totally been advocates to get that <laughs> wife and daughter in there as quickly as possible. Oh, yeah. And, the, and, and then when he's telling the news to the wife and the daughter's sitting six feet away, what is that? Why can we not include her in the situation? Right. What, what does that say to her, that she's not part of the family, that she's not worthy, she can't handle it? What is that trying to convey by saying, let me move you four feet away? It that doesn't really affect irritating. you. <laughs> Again, the chaplain would have made sure that the family group was all a part of that, as well as any child advocate that was involved as well, Carrie. Yes. Now, it was clear that all of the staff in that room, and there were a lot of them, and there were doctors that just sort of came in without any real purpose, but just were interested in that, I think. And they were all really touched by him and by the experience of feeling so helpless because you're just waiting for an organ and your hands are tied. There's nothing else you can do, you know, push some meds here and there and, you know, pump his at times, but I mean, you feel so helpless, I guess, in those moments. And I love kind of this scene of like a nurse just gently patting his hand at times or rubbing his hand and, um, you know, just, just that touch that I'm here. And um, of course, you know, in hospice work, we know that sometimes even touch can be uncomfortable, but I, you know, was aware of what they were trying to portray in that. And and that was powerful to see her there and to see them all there. Did you all catch it when um, when Dr. Green leaves his room and, and um, Nurse Hathaway is standing there? And they and so they're all acknowledging that they're having some kind of a feeling here. Everybody's like mortality is right there in front of them. And um, and then she says. Um, uh, what did what don't was the line? Does anybody remember? Anybody remember it? She said, "Don't say it." Well, she I should was, be grateful to be alive. Yeah, I there you, I you go. Yeah, die. yeah, and it was so ironic that he, you know, just a few episodes back, was trying to take her life, and then in here in this moment, you know, she's seeing someone who was fighting so hard to live, and you know that was powerful I thought for her to be standing outside seeing that it was it was a great scene mm-hmm. yeah and she oh, was and sort of projecting her projection yeah oh go ahead <laughs> no I was gonna say she was sort of projecting onto Mark that of course he must be thinking this when really that's what she was thinking and he's thinking about exactly. himself <laughs> yep yep exactly I have I have been in a situation like this um when I worked at the hospital and I will say that um, the staff, the nurses and the doctors and everyone involved, including the organ transplant people who couldn't find, you know, an organ donor, there was a lot of anger. It, mm-hmm. The family wasn't so much angry, but the staff was, you say that the, the waiting, the inability to do anything, it really, it showed itself through anger. I had several of the doctors yelling or like not throwing things but being really short with other people and slamming down phones and that sense of mm-hmm. of helplessness really was tangible in the way that that they acted so i tried to be 
um, to notice that, to call them out on it when it was appropriate and make sure that they did not act like that when they were actually in the room with the patient and family. I want to add that in these moments, there, uh, it's so weird. Like you, everybody has to feel that inside because you're basically waiting on somebody else to die so that the, those organs can be harvested for the sake of this particular person who needs one of them. And it, that is a reality, but I think that the relational aspect becomes very strong in this, that you know this patient now, and in some ways they portrayed that very well for it to be, you know, a, um, Hollywood, in that, you, you know, you're rooting for this person. But what that means is somebody else, is another relationship, many other relationships are coming to an end if that person comes through and there's a, there's a donor um, so it's a, it's a weird place to be, and yet it's, it's reality. Well, and I lost my train of thought. Go ahead, Carrie. I was just going to say it's also weird in these moments, too, when um, death is inevitable and it's right there um, impending, and it's illustrated here where he's kind of still hanging out in the trauma bay and the family's already there, but then all that staff is there. Um, I'm not sure all of that staff is necessary, but sometimes we go in um, because we're seeking something to be met, some need to be met inside ourselves. And, and whether we have to be in there or not, or we're seeking to fill that need, there is this curious nature to that moment where, um, the staff, we're intruders and we, you know, intimacy happens on a whole different scale in the ER where, you know, all of a sudden you see someone naked and all of a sudden everybody's everything is, is on display for strangers. Uh, um, and this is, again, this is like, uh, you know, the wife is leaning her head over on her husband and she's crying and he's very close to death. And this is a precious, intimate moment happening between them. And uh, the staff are often uh, intruding in that and, and kind of voyeurs. Um, not always in the worst sense of the word, but in a way that is um, just awkward. I don't know a better word to, to name it. Yeah, and as a chaplain, we're, we're often there definitely at bedside when these kinds of moments are happening. And I do sometimes feel like an intruder um, to the point that I will ask the family if they want me to leave. And, and obviously, if they do, I'll honor that. But I'm, I'm surprised by how often they do want me to stay. And I know that that's not because of me. It's, it's the fact that I represent God and that think that they want that physical reminder that God is there with them for those moments. And um, yeah. that's the role the chaplain can fill. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Sam does, does say, as both of you were talking about, that he feels crummy about sitting around waiting for someone else to die when they still have hope of a transplant. One of the other things that struck me about the actors that played Sam and his wife is that they were both very average-looking people. There are still some very pretty faces on this staff, very Hollywood-esque. But these two people that they cast, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying they were unattractive. They were just very average-looking people. 
And I thought that that made it all the more beautiful when they had the wife lying up there on the table and they were looking at each other and talking about their life. It really did make you feel like it could be anyone that you knew. Yeah. Yeah, and ER did that really well. I think more than a lot of hospital shows that I watch now. Um, and I was reading an article recently about the popularity of ER resurging and what makes it so great. And one of the things they mentioned is that there was a lot more diversity in terms of writing and directing on ER than there were with a lot of shows back then. And even today, there's just not a lot of women or people of color, you know, behind the cameras and ER did that really well. And I think that spilled over into a lot of things on the show, probably including casting um, and that it, it is more, a more real looking hospital in terms of they they don't all look like Hollywood actors and they don't all, you know, act perfect all the time. They're more flawed people and more regular seeming people, the doctors and the patients. I mean, obviously you've got really attractive doctors. George freaking Clooney is there, but, um, <laughs> but not all of them, you know, some of the nurses and other people look like actual people you would see working in a hospital. So, Speaking of diversity, can we talk about Dr. Ross and the mom and the daughter with asthma? Mm -hmm. um, so many feelings about that storyline. Um, we get to see um, Dr. Ross's privilege on display, like his assumption that you could just buy the medicine or you could just take time off work and um, trust that your job would still be there for you if you took time off work. Um, and also during that storyline, I found myself kind of fussing at the TV, like, where's the social worker? Yeah. <laughs> That's what we called them in. Did y'all have any feelings or observations about, um, this? You all, you already know that I said my patience with Dr. Ross can be very low. <laughs> the fact that he borrows the 40 bucks to buy the medicine <laughs> before green. he takes it from his... <laughs> friend, Dr. Green, I'm like, you louse. Like, I know you have good <laughs> intentions, but can you at least do it the right way? <laughs> yeah, and it's just his lack of understanding that not everybody has a job where they can just take off because they have to take their kid to the doctor. You know, this is a woman who's probably working a minimum wage job where she doesn't have a boss who understands or cares about her yeah. and her child. And she said she's only been there two weeks. Um, you know, so she could very well be fired for leaving to take her child to the doctor. And you're right, Carrie, Doug is just coming from such a privileged position that he can't even imagine that happening. He's always had jobs where, you know, his, his supervisor would understand something like that coming up. Yeah, I mean, he comes to work drunk. Right. And hook him up to an IV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's so different. Like he has no idea what it's like to be that mom. And she's probably a single mom. I don't know if they actually said that, but it appeared that, that way. Certainly a hardworking woman who cared a great deal about her daughter, but in part of caring for her daughter is showing up for work and making, you know, what she can to put a roof over her head and other ways of, you know, keeping her alive, not just her breathing situation. But, you know, I, and I confused why they wouldn't have just given her that anyway. I mean, that's just a, you know, just a frustration I have. Why wouldn't they have just given her the inhaler at the hospital? I mean, that's part of it, making sure that you have everything you need before they discharge you. But 
Right. I guess that was where the social worker would have come in if we could have had one of those <laughs> in that in that room. <laughs> the, well, the the daughter also the looks on her face during the whole the whole time the looks of concern, worry, guilt. She yeah. felt horrible for putting her mother in this situation. And even though Dr. Ross does speak to her personally and calls her by name and everything, he doesn't address any of those feelings that she's so obviously having mm -hmm. over putting her mother in this position because she knows mm -hmm. exactly what it means. I mean, she's 12. She knows. Yeah. Yeah. Janie? I think that there is a little bit of a privilege of knowledge. I don't know how else to say it. Like, Mm -hmm. But about some, sometimes I, I think can happen in hospitals when you see these things every day, or in this case, a professional, I mean, a doctor, you know, but it could be lots of people that sometimes I think that they forget that not everybody knows what to look for with some mm -hmm. of these things. Like I remember my own daughter had pneumonia and she was wheezing and like I, I felt terrible because I didn't even know. I didn't know she was wheezing. Like, I didn't know what to listen for. I didn't know what that sounded like. And um, I thought about that a lot with our families, you know, like, um, you know, I don't know how, I don't remember in this episode how sick the little girl was when she brought her in. But like, I, I don't know if, if sometimes we might experience, and I think this probably happens everywhere, that like, well, why didn't you come in sooner? Or why didn't somebody do something, you know? And, and sometimes people just don't know. And we take it for granted that, that we do know and that we're around it all the time. And um, yeah. especially if, I feel like, especially if they're from, I mean, if they're just functioning lower on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I mean, they're just yes. all paying, they're not paying attention or they don't have the luxury of paying attention sometimes to some of these yes. kind of delicate situations that are going on with people's health. So, well, mm -hmm. I assume that when Dr. Ross goes, goes to the neighborhood and goes up that horrible looking elevator that, you know, that, that they're trying to show that he has a realization of his privilege, that they're trying to imply that, yeah. oh, he has a better understanding of, and I, I can't help but think also that, you know, her problems probably stem from the buildings that, the building that she's living in and the quality of, you know, her food and mm -hmm. it, it's, they mentioned that, you know, she loved the stray cat. That might be the least of her problems in, you know, housing mm -hmm. projects like that. Yeah. We hear this a lot, too, um, when, whether it's, you know, the therapist at, at, uh, at a recovery center or it's the doctor in the ER, um, whoever your, your care providers are, we sometimes hear them talk about patients and talk about cases and say uh, they're not compliant. Um, mm -hmm. without always understanding that sometimes the choice, for example, in this uh, scenario is um, buy medicine or, I don't know, buy food or buy medicine or keep the heat on. Um, so when we say that they're not compliant, we make assumptions about their willingness to participate in their own health care, um, sometimes failing to recognize that uh, like Janie said, they're, they're operating on a lower rung of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The most important thing I can do right now is keep my job um, and keep whatever immediate bills need to be paid to, to be covered before I can afford the luxury of asthma medicine. I can't help but, but think of the parallel to um, 
the shot uh, today, what are the, the EpiPen situation oh, that we had yeah, going yeah. on in the last year about how pharmaceutical companies hiked up the price. It's, I couldn't help but think of that because we... Uh-oh. I think we might have lost Sarah Jane. We did lose her. You know, the, the other parallel that's happening is, you know, this child's life is in jeopardy because of whatever um, environmental circumstances or, or genetic situation she's living with while, you know, the college student's life is in jeopardy because of um, a series of bad decisions that he made. And, um, and you know, the, the power differential on display when Susan Lewis is standing in this darkened room um, and he's still got the tube in his throat, and she's standing over him, and they're the only two people in the room. Um, it, it almost had, like, this sinister feel to that scene. Um, I know that she was speaking to him harshly in the hopes that um, she could effectively scare him into not jeopardizing his own life like this again, and yet it, it was a little creepy, too, the way she kind of stood over him and was like, and promise me you'll never do this again, like, Certainly we have those feelings, you know, when we see these cases come in, like, why do you do this to yourself? Please don't do this to yourself again. Um, that was really uncomfortable to see her talking to him like that when it was just the two of them and, and he was intubated. So powerless there. Yeah, good point. Um, so we are just about at the end of our time. So does anybody have any final thoughts on Episode five. Or favorite was, moments. I really liked the moment where, um, oh my gosh, you know, the names just leave my brain. Um, <laughs> hello, the chief resident. What is his name? Mark Green. Mark, come on. Thank you, Mark Green. How can I forget that? Yes, so when he goes home and after, you know, he's lost the, um, the heart transplant, they didn't get it, and so they lost that life. And he goes home and, and has a similar scene with his wife. Clearly, they're very healthy. He's holding his wife, and his daughter comes in, and he invites her to join them to snuggle in the bed. And it reminded me quickly of, you know, what it was like when we saw um, the person just fighting for life, and then his wife, like you have all described so well, just, you know, in the bed with him and their daughter, of course, there as well, and just the difference in, in that and how it may, it really puts things into perspective for us, and I think that that is very true in our uh, ministry as chaplains. We see that we are faced so often with death or seriously life-changing experiences and it puts things into perspective in a very positive way and I have said before that you know God called me as a hospice chaplain to serve people as they were dying and they ultimately taught me how to live mm. I think that is so true for us that you know here you have Dr. Green being reminded that he can compromise it's his choice to invest in his family and to compromise and, you know, with these big life decisions because 
he is still alive, very much alive, and he has that choice. And so I think it helps us make better life decisions in being so faced so often with death and with life-changing experiences. For that, I'm grateful. Yes. Um, and my favorite moment was kind of in a similar vein. I really, and it was really hard to watch in some senses, but I really love when Mr. Gasner, Sam, is saying goodbye to his daughter and they're both just really tearful. And then his daughter, Sarah, breaks away and goes and confronts Dr. Green and says, why can't you fix him? And is just really angry with Dr. Green. And, and he says, I can't fix everything. And it's just such a, a moment of honesty from both of them. I was really, it sounds strange to say, and this is getting into my own stuff, but I was really proud of that little girl for, mm. for, you know, tapping into that anger. And when I was nine, my mom was really sick and I was told to, to push down those feelings and, you know, to, to be strong for my mom. Um, so I was just, I was really proud of her for, um, for saying that, for being able to stand up to this doctor and then also proud of Mark for just admitting that he he is powerless in this moment and um, just sort of joining her in that feeling of powerlessness and the unfairness of it all and, um, and that part of grief with the family. Mm. Anyone else have any final thoughts? Sarah Jane, you have anything? Um, one of the things that I, I wrote at the bottom after this episode when I had finished wiping my tears away um, was that as a chaplain, a lot of times um, when you have a situation that's really intense like this, um, you go home and, and you hug those you love a little tighter. And um, sometimes I would come home and I would watch my husband sleep well, that sounds a little creepy, but, and I would just um, thank God for everything that I did have. And then also humbly realize that, you know, it could, it could have been me. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that side of humanity that goes, I think that ER does a really good job of showing everyone's humanity. So it just reminded me of, of those days of chaplaincy when you come home and are just just like Dr. Green, you know, holding his wife and his child close. Yeah, that's so true. Um, it's powerful stuff. So thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, Sarah Jane, Deb, Janie, and Carrie, thank you for being here and for another great conversation about these episodes. Listeners, please let us know um, your thoughts about episodes four and five of the first season of ER on Facebook or Twitter. And thank you so much to those of you who have shared about our podcast on Facebook and Twitter. We really appreciate that, helping more listeners to find us. And we will be back with you next week to discuss two more episodes of ER. ER Chaplains Watching ER is produced at Top 5 Studios by my talented husband, Will Lawton. Music for the show is provided by our band, Rogue 2. You can hear some more of our great original songs at Rogue2, that's T-W-O, dot rocks. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcast app so other listeners can find us. 
Let us know your thoughts about the show on Twitter at chaplains underscore ER or comment on our Facebook page at chaplains watching ER. You can learn more about the hosts and find show notes for each episode on our website, chaplainswatching.net. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook at Stacy N. Sargent. That's S-E-R-G-E-N-T. I blog about hospital chaplaincy, step parenting, and other stuff at stacynsargent.com, where you can also find links to get my book, Being Called Chaplain, How I Lost My Name and Eventually Found My Faith. Join us right here next week for more insightful conversations about ER.